Lots of things are better together. Hockey, food, golf. How about a cold one on the patio during a nice spring day? But if you really want to take things to the next level, drink some Labatt Blue Lights with your friends and live life to the power of we. Always enjoy responsibly. Beer, Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. Thank you, as always, for checking us out here on the GM Shuffle. Please go to Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe, rate, and review. Lots of good stuff here to talk about on the Shuffle, including why a decreasing salary cap will impact teams, plus NFL Offensive Rookie of the Year odds, and could we ever see the XFL return? It has obviously been a very heavy week here in life, and we are going to discuss what's happening right now with this country in regards to the George Floyd murder and how people are reacting to his death and with the protests around this country. But I do want to start at a moment of levity, Mike, and that is with this. We both live in the great state of Jersey, your home, my adopted home. I'm in North Jersey, you're in South Jersey. Great news is we're about to enter phase two, and I I thought of you immediately as the son of a barber. (laughs) What is your reaction that June 22nd we can get haircuts again? Because i got to tell you, with four boys in this house, we did one haircut at home. It was a disaster. I've always had a lot of respect for anybody that cuts here professionally, including your father. Big news, June 22nd, we can get haircuts cuts in jersey it's awesome i mean barbershop mike is in a you know place right down the street here in ocean city and they've had no problem but to not as the son of a barber i mean i've now millie has become the barber in the family it's kind of remarkable and when she wears her glasses it actually turns out really good you know and so i've been fortunate i think i've had three haircuts professionally done you know since this pandemic started and and it's been a lifesaver i mean i i'm a son of a barber so i'm used to going every four weeks you know he took the longest time to cut my hair too it used to kill me you know i was like oh my god enough is enough you know barbershop mike enough but i I mean i think there's a sense of in the state of new jersey ocean city is now crowded you know, the boardwalks got people up there. There's a sense that this is that we're back to somewhat of normal. And I think people are ready for normal. No question. It's definitely optimistic, not only here in New Jersey, but throughout America, at least with regards to the pandemic, as you mentioned, with it looks like, especially in major areas, numbers decreasing, specifically in New York City, uh, Chicago and others. Having said that, the focus this entire week for the entire country has been the protests after the death of George Floyd. A handcuffed black man who pleaded for air as a white Minneapolis police officer kneeled on his neck last week. In specifics to the NFL, teams from all over the league, including the Vikings, tweeting statements regarding the murder murder and an official statement the NFL addressed its commitment to using its platform in communities and as part of the fabric of American society and that we embrace that responsibility and are committed to continuing the important work to address these systemic issues together with our players clubs and partners however not good enough for Vikings linebackers Eric Kendricks and Anthony Barr who are on the team's social justice committee issued identical tweets denouncing the league's stance Your statement said nothing. Both tweets read, Your league is built on black athletes. Vague answers do nothing. Let the players know what you're actually doing, and we know what silence means. It's obviously been a very unsettling week, Mike, and a very somber week. How are you dealing with everything you're seeing on the news and the protests and and from a vantage point of the NFL? Well, I mean, I think Kendricks and Barr are completely right. I think what we're looking for from teams is you keep this in a, in a team environment, and what we're looking for from the league is leadership. We're looking for a direction. You know, we're not looking for tweets. We're not looking for a press release. We're not looking for something that you post on Instagram. We're looking for a plan, some form of leadership that is going to unify we the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States. And I think that they fall short. And I, and I think when you read Jeffrey Lurie's press release 
of this. It's obviously opposite of what the league put out because Lori wasn't concerned about being politically correct. Lori was concerned about his heart. And I think that sometimes that when you try to be politically correct, there's an absence of leadership. And this is clearly what's what the league does too many times is say what you feel, say what you believe, you know, say what's in your heart. It's not a hard thing to do. We're all we the people. It's all of us. It's not a hard thing to do. It's about doing what's right. And so when you hide behind long words or legalese and you know that some lawyer wrote it, you know that it just doesn't come across as genuine leadership. And what do we want from our owners? What do we want from our league? We want care. You know, we want a stable league. We want them to believe in the people in the league. And we want them to show that they care. Jeffrey Lurie showed he cared. Now, we got to stop with the slogans and, and all the stuff, and we have to be actionable. It has to be actionable. And I think that that, to me, is when I sit and watch it, I crave for action. Because you know what, A.D., when you go back and, and you study history, and, and I'm old, and so obviously, you know, it, for me, it's, you know, I'm a child of the 60s that I can remember the TV just glowing with the fires and similar to what we're seeing now. And, and I look back on it and I always come back to Bobby Kennedy's speech on June 6, 1966 in, in Cape town, South Africa. And he starts the speech off and this is fascinating how he starts the speech off. I come here this evening because of my deep interest and affection for a land settled by the Dutch in the mid 17th century, then taken over by the British as the last independent in a land which native inhabitants were first subdued by relations with whom remain a problem to this day, a land which defined itself on hostile frontier, a land that which has tamed its rich natural resources through energetic application of modern technology, a land of which was once an importer of slaves, now must struggle to wipe out the last traces of that former bondage. I refer, of course, to the United States of America. When you read that paragraph, you think he's talking about South Africa, right? And he's talking about the United States of America. This is 66. At some point, we have to stop slogans. We have to stop Twitter. We have to, we have to do. This is 66. We're in 2020. Yeah, it makes you think those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And I know I felt the cascade of emotions. You feel heartbreak and sadness for the family of George Floyd. Uh, you feel fear and trepidation when you see the looters and the damage they're causing. But then I do feel hope and optimism when I look at all the peaceful protests. And to your point, those are the ones who are taking action, who are not just going to sit back, who are trying to enact change, who are trying to have their voice heard, but do so in a responsible manner and to do so the way that the generations did before in the 60s, 70s, and the 80s. And I do worry about social distancing. I mean, uh, uh, this COVID-19, I feel like we're not out of the woods yet. Now I look at the images of protesters and everyone's sandwiched together, so my heart goes down a little bit. But at the same time, to your point, enacting change begins with action. And this is where sports, which can so often be a respite from the real world, can also take charge. And as you mentioned, Jeffrey Lurie, others, those in the NFL, and of course in other sports, LeBron James and, and you know, all athletes right now are speaking together. And you just kind of hope and pray that if it coalesces together, real change can be enacted and not just false words. Yeah, and I think what LeBron was doing I think is good. I mean, like we need to know there. Like yesterday in Ocean City, there was a, a sense of urgency. There was a sense of anxiety in the town because there was a release out. The Black Lives Movement was coming to protest here in Ocean City. 
And literally, there was uh, most of the town area where my office is was boarded up. I mean, literally, it was boarded up. The boardwalk was boarded up because people were fearful of a violent protest. And it was a peaceful protest. They came in. They walked across this two-and-a-half-mile bridge that leads you into the island. They sat down in front of the old elementary school, which is now the police office, which is right across at the back of my building, and they held a peaceful protest. They did it with class. They did it with dignity. They did it with a purpose, and it worked out really well, and it was kind of cool to watch. And I think what LeBron said was true is he's saying, hey, look, we hear all about the violent and the rioting, and which is unnecessary, which is not called for, but let's hear about some of the peaceful things that we're trying to do. But once again, I think, you know, as, as someone as old as I am, I think you need to understand that we can't keep living this, you know, for my grandsons. I don't want them to live in this world. You know, when we, we moved to, when Millie and I moved to Oakland, California, I wanted my kids to go to school in an environment where there were people of color, there were different ethnicities, because it just, it, it helps you, what helps all of us. You know, it helps all of us understand that we, the people, are the people. And I think we need to have more of that. No question about it. We hope for optimism and we hope for real change. Uh, We now shift our attention to the matter of the NFL and what's happening. And your focus, Mike, from the GM's eye on TV is getting a budget for salary cap decrease in 2021. Uh, The only sure thing of the future of the NFL is there will be a decline in the salary cap next year. Those I talk with daily are optimistic the NFL will indeed play games this season. But the lasting impact of COVID-19 means that getting back to work and that work looking the same as it did in the past are two different things. The new reality we must face as we head into the season is that if we want football this year, fans will be limited until we make significant gains in prevention, vaccines, and cures. There will likely be no fans in the stands, and that means that substantial revenue streams will be absent from the accounting process this season, which will impact future years. That's the key here, right? Everyone keeps saying, well, we're going to have football. Well, yeah, but it's going to look a lot different. And to think this isn't going to have a huge economic impact would be foolish, right? It's like, you know, I mean, I wrote that story on Monday and then this week people started talking about it. Finally. I mean, you know, it's like I'm not saying they bogarted my column, but I think, you know, this is to me the biggest news of the day. I I think this is bigger than anything. You know, the fact that, you know, today uh, we learned that the chances of the NFL teams having any offseason, we knew back in April that was remote, right? So the league now has announced that, you know, they haven't announced this, but Schefter reported this today that the next time the teams get together is going to be for training camp whenever that is. You know, there's not going to be, you know, the offseason program has to end by a certain point and you can't go away for training camp. So the league's tightening stuff up. But this salary cap issue that's going on is – you know, because of the lost revenue, it could be a huge shortfall. And I think that it's going to take some time to get it back. And I think what we're headed for next offseason is a huge, a huge, huge problem. Because if, if Schefter's right, I said $30 million in my column. Schefter reported yesterday that it's going to be somewhere between 30 and $80 million. The cap will go down. This is going to cause complete panic. This is going to have an unemployment rate in the National Football League of quality players beyond anything you've seen. Next year, the Eagles are $50 million above the cap. Now, you know, $50 million above the cap, no big deal. You know, you cut Deshaun Jackson, you cut Alshon Jeffrey, you cut some other guy, you know, all of a sudden you pick up all the cap room you need, right? 
if you got to cut 50 plus another 70, you got to cut 120 million off your cap. Good luck. You're not going to have a team. And you could say, well, the owners need to make concessions. No, because the owners and the players are partners in this. They're partners. How do you make a concession when it's your partner? Yeah, 30 million to 80 million, that is an incredibly wide gulf. You're right. I mean, that's that's a significant amount. More from what you wrote in the athletic. Even though the cap will come down, the deals for these three players, Patrick Mahomes, Dak Prescott, Russell Wilson, will not be impacted. All of them will get their money, but there will be others who won't be as lucky. It's the middle-tier players who will pay a heavy price if the cap tumbles. Players who serve as quasi-starters with inflated cap numbers will find rookies breathing down their necks. Rookie deals will become more popular as the only way to work the cap successfully is the cheap workforce. You're going to have a real divide, right, in income inequality. It's going to be your rich superstars, generally your star quarterbacks, and then just a ton of rookies making the minimum just so you can meet that number, right? No doubt. And then when you look at 2021, I mean, the Rams, for example, they put $8.4 million of Todd Gurley's cap charges into their 2021 cap. So now, you know, right now at their 2021 cap, I mean, and say it's $80 million less than it was this year. I mean, you can forget Andre Whitworth, that's $11 million. You can forget Leonard Floyd. You can forget Jeffrey J- Robinson and Haverstein and Brocker. You can forget them all. I mean, you just start trimming them because it doesn't do you any good to trim the minimum salary guys. It only does you good to trim the guys that have some some meat on the bone. I mean, the Rams are just going to keep going from bad to bad to bad. It's going to be what's going to be left is Goff and Donald and then just a bunch of rookies. Like, how do they do the deal for Jalen Ramsey when they know that next year the cap could be $80 million impacted? Like, how do you do Patrick Mahomes' deal when you know the cap next year could be $80 million less than what you're doing? The same thing with Deshaun Watson. And Dak Prescott, I mean, see, here's the thing I think people don't understand is how this game's played. Each one, Watson, Mahomes, and Prescott all have different agents. And Prescott's agent knows. He knows that he's not going to be able to get quite to Watson and to Mahomes. He knows he's not getting to Mahomes, but he needs to be able to carry them. He's like the bike rider who's riding behind a guy who's in the lead. He's just basically blocking the wind for him, you know? And so this will be allow him to get as close as he can. That's why he doesn't want to do a deal yet. That's why he doesn't want to do a deal. He wants to wait till Watson does a deal and then try to do it because here's what you don't want to do as an agent. When the ink is dry on the signature of the contract you just did, two weeks later, another deal comes in that's already over your deal. You don't want that. You need to be able to have a deal that stands on. So I think it's going to be very complex to get extensions. I think we're headed into the abyss. I think it's going to be apocalyptic in terms of where this league's going because someone is going to pay a price for not having fans in the stands. And it ain't going to be the owners. It's going to be the partners. And I don't think people understand that. Exactly. That's what happens when you have revenue sharing. It's different in baseball where the players keep saying, listen, we're not going to take a cap. We're not going to do any sort of revenue sharing in the NFL, in basketball, in hockey. They all have salary cap systems. Right in the NFL, the cap at around $200 million. If you go down $80 million, that's a 40% hit. That's certainly going to be a significant amount of money moving forward. By the way, you can follow Mike on Instagram. Follow M. Lombardi NFL, same as his NFL Twitter handle, excuse me, and follow me, Adnan S. Burke. You can also follow our show's Instagram page, at the GM Shuffle. Coming up next, we've been talking gambling odds as far as some of the major categories. We've done Coach of the Year, MVP. How about NFL Rookie of the Year odds, at least when it comes to offense? That's next on the GM Shuffle.
All right, anytime you're on the golf course, you always hear the phrase, hit it long and hit it straight. Well, as somebody who's a novice to the game of golf, a new person, I wanted to make sure I had the best equipment possible. So, as a novice golfer, I went and hit up our friends over at PXG because they have an all-new driver called the Black Ops. I mean, my man Chris over in Henderson has hooked me up with a phenomenal driver that's built to my game. My new game that doesn't really do much of anything on the course, but it has what I need in terms of the club head speed and the kind of grip that I need to go out there and be the best to my ability. I mean, this is music to ears to any golfer, whether you're a novice like myself or if you've been playing the game for decades. The PXG Black Ops driver is a breakthrough in driver technology. It's a complete and total victory in golf club engineering unlike anything you've ever seen before. Black Op drivers are adjustable to deliver a combined MOI of 10,000 plus for unreal forgiveness. That's just ridiculously high. So what you got to do, go check out the PXG Black Ops driver. You'll be as impressed with it as I am. Learn more and get free shipping on all equipment at pxg.com slash gmshuffle and use code gmshuffle at checkout. That's pxg.com slash gmshuffle, code gmshuffle for free shipping on all equipment, pxg.com slash gmshuffle, code gmshuffle. All right, NFL Offensive Rookie of the Year odds. This year's NFL Draft was the most watched in history by a wide margin. Of course, there's no other sports on, so everybody was locked in on the draft, which always does ratings, good ratings, but this year was a different matter. Joe Burrow, number one overall pick by the Bengals. He is the frontrunner, no surprise, being named the NFL Offensive Rookie of the Year, according to BetMGM. Now, former Crimson Tide quarterback, Tua Tungavailoa, drafted by the Dolphins, one of the contenders to also win Rookie of the Year. Then you get other three players, NFL rookie odds of 10 to 1 or less are running backs. So here's some of the numbers, Mike. Joe Burrows, plus 200. Okay, that makes sense. DeAndre Swift, running back, plus 850. Tua is at plus 900. Now we get the more running backs. Jonathan Taylor, plus 950. Clyde Edwards-Alaire, plus 1,000. And then you get a few receivers. C.D. Lamb at plus 1,200. Jerry Judy plus 1,200. And Justin Jefferson at plus 1,750. We know with the MVP, it's always a quarterback odds. But it's interesting here. You got a couple of quarterbacks in Burrow and Tua. Then you got running backs and wide receivers mixed in. Which one do you think is a good pick? You know, I think Clyde Edwards is a tremendous pick. I think C.D. Lamb is a tremendous pick. I think what I would do with this is I would take a few guys and spread the money around. I think Jonathan Taylor's a really interesting pick. You know, I wouldn't bet it on Tua. I would bet on Burrow because let's just say that the Bengals win four games and Burrow has a decent year. He might just get rookie of the year. But anyone else, they have to be on winning teams. You know, and I think C.D. Lamb qualifies, the third receiver in the slot. You know, he's going to get a lot of advantages in terms of who covers him. I think the Cowboy offense can be explosive this year, uh, even though last year it was good at times, it was inconsistent. And then I think Jonathan Taylor, the big back, you know, that can come in there, especially the way Frank Reich likes to run the football to kind of offset himself with Hines and Mack. You know, there's a lot of guys to carry. I don't see Tua playing as much, maybe at what, week six or seven, but I think Ryan Fitzpatrick's going to keep that job. And then I think the other guys, I mean, Judy and Ruggs. Ruggs, to me, is going to be like a home run hitter. He's going to come on the field and play. But for me, I, those would be the guys that I would play. Swift, can Detroit win? Can he make a difference in what they do? I think he'll be a good part of what they do offensively. But can they win enough? I think the rookie of the year is going to have to be part of a winning team as well. You know, that he enhanced that team. That's why I like CeeDee Lamb. I like Halir, And I like Taylor. 
Good point about the winning team because the borough he's going to play or the Bengals actually going to be a winner. Well, no, it would be, a, I would think, an incredible reach to even get to 500. So that obviously hurts his candidacy. Back to the thought about quarterbacks. So Burrow and Tua are two of the top three. After that, you have to go all the way down to Justin Herbert at plus 2,000. So that's like, you know, top 10 in terms of the, by the betting odds. And you want to go even further, you get to Jordan Love at plus 3,000. I mean, that would be... A hell of a move, but somehow it would have to be an injury, right? Aaron Rodgers would have to get hurt, and Jordan Love would have to get pressed into duty. And the Packers do have a good team, so they could theoretically have a good season and make the playoffs with Love. But otherwise, there's no way he's going to play, I imagine, at least this year. Right. It'd be like when Ben played as a rookie. You know, Tommy Maddox got hurt in the week two, and then Ben had to come in, and they went to the playoffs. And, you know, Ben kind of managed the game. That would have to be. But I'm not sure that the Packers are good enough defensively to kind of let that thing go through. And look, I love Judy, but I think you're counting on, you know, Drew Locke to be as good as you hope he will be. So there's a little bit of doubt there. You know, the guy I like is K.J. Hamler at the, at the Broncos because I think he can impact the game in the kicking game and on offense in two phases. And then Justin Jefferson, I mean, someone's got to fill in for Stefan Diggs. So you got to feel like he can come in and do some things. And I think there's a lot of options. I think a sleeper guy, too, for me is Cam Akers. If the Rams play well this year, and say the Rams get a wild card, I think Cam Akers is going to be the back. I think Cam Akers is going to take that step, and he's going to be the starting running back for the Rams, and I think he can make a huge difference. So I would play him as well. Every time I see Akers, I think of Chris Berman saying David Green Akers, and and wondering, like, how many people actually got that reference to Green Akers? (laughs) I would imagine very few. I mean, you know, it's like, I know, I I mean, that's an era. That's the problem is we all the shows that we watched. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, my son, you know, they're all here and I got Dominic and they don't want Dominic to watch much television and Mikey. And I'm like, well, you know, like I was watching Gilligan's Island when I was a kid. Like that, that's bad TV, right? Like he's watching ABC TV. TV like that's good TV like there's a difference between TV but you know we're limited at how much TV you watch I mean the kid's smarter than I am and I mean he's not watching TV so you know I'm watching Gilligan's Island I'm watching Green Acres I mean it's hilarious I mean can you imagine those shows even surviving today no. do, you, do you remember Green Acres at all I don't I mean, Gilligan's Island I definitely saw on reruns and you're right just the kitsch value of those shows there's no way it could survive today yeah, no chance. I mean, it's the theory, Beverly Hillbillies, you know, all that. I mean, it's it's hilarious. All right, stay tuned. After the break, we got Joe's question of the week with the XFL Plus. Jack Nicholson, one of our favorite actors, just for fun, we kick around the idea of the Mount Rushmore of Jack's movies. That's next. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. I mean, the second round of the playoffs have been absolutely phenomenal, and if you really like a team, you can bet on them for the futures markets, maybe some conference finals MVPs as the conference finals approach, or how about NBA finals MVP? And if you're new to DraftKings, you got to check this out. New customers bet 5 bucks to get 150 in bonus bets instantly. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code SHUFFLE. That's code SHUFFLE for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just 5 bucks only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. 
Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. In Connecticut, help is available. For problem gambling, call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please pay responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. All right, time now for Joe's Quest of the Week. Joe, what do you have for us? So the XFL is going to be auctioned off on August 3rd after filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy last April. Its founder, Vince McMahon, said that there's 20 potential buyers that have now signed NDAs for a potential purchase of the league. With that many buyers interested, my question to you guys is, do you think the league will make a return? And if so, when? You know, Mike, this is one of those, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Like, it's XFL, I think there's definitely been some good ideas along the way, certainly technologically speaking, especially that first year you saw the way they used the camera, miking the players, you know, getting more personality, he hate me, et cetera. And I know you watched a little more of this latest iteration here the second time around. But to me, if you fail twice, it's pretty tough to get back on the horse a third time. I mean, I get the fact Vince is going to say there's still people kicking tires. And yes, there's a huge appetite for football in this country. But if you fail twice, it's tough to really go for three for me. Well, I mean, that's true. However, however, what we talked about on the salary cap, we're going to have a huge supply of players that are going to have a hard time getting jobs. And there's going to be a supply chain out there that's going to be really, really better than what they had last year. If I were the NFL, I would buy the league. I would partner with somebody and buy the league. I think it has to be one person buys the league. One person has to incur the cost. It can't be nine different owners because that's what messes everything up. And then I think it could be really the, the farm system, the developmental system, the leadership academy we talked about. It could be everything for everyone. You know, and it could be an awesome way to help get more employment for players. I, I think if I'm the National Football League, and I know that would seem like a monopoly, right? If they own two leagues, I don't know, you know, federal law and antitrust laws and all that stuff. But to me, I would be really interested in buying it. I think it's the perfect time now because if that cap goes down, and really, let's face it, AD, you don't care who's in the stands anymore, right? I mean, you know, because of the virus, see ticket sales, you know, it, that rev, it's got to be all on television and TVs are looking for more stuff. So I think it could line up to the perfect storm. I wouldn't be surprised if Vince McMahon makes money on this thing. It's a good point you make about supply and demand. I didn't think about that. You're right. There's an amount of players who are going to be looking for jobs. And so therefore, hey, man, you just want to play. Who cares if it's 100000 whatever. At that point, you just you want to play, especially if you just lost your job in the NFL. And revenge is always a dish best served cold. I would think a lot of these guys, they get cut by the NFL because the salary cap limitations say, I don't care. I'll play wherever you want. There's only so many guys that can play in the CFL. So I do see your point. If the cap could be that disastrous, then yes, this league could have some chance. Amazing that they could come back from the dead for a third time, right? 
Yeah, no doubt. And I think sometimes, you know, the, in the middle of difficulty lies opportunity. And I think there's a great opportunity here for this league. And I think that somebody who's a lot smarter than I am is going to see this opportunity in light of the salary cap, in light of the fact that we don't need fans. We can play in small stadiums. We can really reduce our costs. We don't need to play in, in the Meadowlands. We don't need to play at Texas Stadium. We don't need to play. You know, we can cut this thing down. We're going to have very few people in the stands. We're going to, it's going to be a paid for television event. It's going to be only for TV. We're going to have interaction. Obviously, the TV is going to have to fund everything. And we don't have to worry about selling tickets to be able to make it. So I think there's a great opportunity. I really do. And then as we build back, once the game gets popular from the, the vantage point of seeing it on television, then you can maybe by that time we'll be able to sell tickets. TV definitely is uh, what it's all about. When it comes to movies and TV, we always like to talk a little pop culture here. Recently on Cinephile, I watched the movie Ironweed, which is with Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep. It came out in 1987. I'd never actually seen it. They play a couple of Depression-era drifters. It's based on a book, and it was excellent. It made me think about how much I miss Jack Nicholson, who hasn't made like a major film since The Bucket List, which was over a decade ago. His last credited screen appearance was 10 years ago, and how do you know? Mike and I both love As Good As It Gets. It's one of our favorite uh, Jack Nicholson movies. So I have a question to you, Mr. Lombardi. If you did do a Nicholson Mount Rushmore, which I did, and this is virtually an incredibly difficult thing to do. Here's the four I'm going with. One, over the, uh, one floor of the cuckoo's nest, iconic performance as McMurtry. Chinatown, which is one of the great film noirs of the 1970s. As good as it gets, as you and I have discussed, Melvin Udall, so funny and so unforgettable. And then it's very tough for that last spot. Do you go with The Departed? Do you go with About Schmidt? Do you go with uh, A Few Good Men? Lots of great choices. The Shining is a great movie. How about for you? How do you see it? What are your favorite Jack movies? Well, I think he was amazing as the Joker. I thought he was fabulous as the Joker. I love the Batman. I thought One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and The Shining together, I think they were incredible. I mean, when you just see the scene of him peeking his nose through the door, it's like The Shining, you know, you just get that. So I go there. A Few Good Men. I don't know how you can play Nathan R. Jessup is part of our culture. He's part of our, you know, you're quoting that movie all the time. And then how do I not have him in the, in the departed as Frank Costello, you know? And so for me, that that's kind of where I am. I mean, and, and, and I don't know enough about, I wish I want to go back and watch easy rider. Cause I don't, you know, that's 69. I don't remember that Cardinal knowledge, you know, the only thing I know about Cardinal Knowledge was Anne Margaret. You could see her butt in that. That was when we were kids. Like, oh, my God, you see Anne Margaret's butt. You know, it's like, oh, my God. You know, that's the only thing I know about that movie. I don't even know what it's about, you know. And so there's things you just wish you could see. I miss the hell out of the guy. I really do. I mean, when you watch him act and watch him just get into the cat, like Hoffa, I wanted to like Hoffa, but I wasn't in love with the movie. I just didn't think it was a great screenplay. I've never seen Ironweed. Now, the way you just described Ironweed, like Pritzi's Honor. How good was that? Terms of Endearment. I mean, think about some of the movies. He, and the, I'll tell you the one I liked him in is The Postman Always Rings Twice, too, with Jessica Lange. I mean, that was an awesome movie. Uh, you're right about Pritzi's Honor. Underrated, for especially guys like you and me, love our mob movies. That's a very underrated mob comedy if you've never seen it. Angelica Houston won an Oscar for it. Pritzi's Honor came out in 1985. Witches of Eastwick, another one. Broadcast News is a small role. You're right about Hoffa. I, I, it wasn't a great movie, but I did love his performance because I thought he was so 
kind of just imbued with the union and the whole thought process of Hoffa being so one note. Obviously, Pacino was unbelievable as well in that performance. But I want to go back to The Departed you mentioned because some people think The Departed is overacting. But I think, listen, the way he comes off in that movie, I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. The way he's so sadistic in that movie, he takes the ring off the dead guy's hand. I mean, the, the way he's bullying Leonardo DiCaprio, unbelievable. Yeah, we know Chrissy liked it because he had the soundtrack right before he died. So it was like, you know, we know he he would have put Chrissy, Chris Maltasanti would have put at least the part on his. Like, what would Chrissy's top five list be? Like, you know, he, he was a movie man writing screenplays, you know. Adriana, could you imagine, could we hear her voice giving, I like him in the, you know, could you imagine that? <laughs> I'm glad you answered The Sopranos. That's our final thought this week. You and I talked about Jerry Stiller passing away, who was so unforgettable on Seinfeld. There's a Sopranos podcast out right now called Talking Sopranos, right? Michael Imperioli and Steven Shrippa. Uh, obviously, Michael Imperioli, as you mentioned, played Christopher Moltisanti. Shrippa played Bobby Bacala. They just had a couple of the casting directors in The Sopranos on, and they said the role of Hesh was originally supposed to be, wait for it, Jerry Stiller. But Jerry Stiller had to shoot a commercial when they were filming that day. They were shoot on a Friday and whatever. He was busy. He's like, oh, I can't make it till Monday. So Jerry Adler is the actor who ended up playing Hesh, who's a very you know, underrated role. I think obviously very funny, a rare guy to have a Jewish guy on the show. But could you imagine Jerry Stiller as Hesh? It's the best. No, I couldn't even imagine that. Like, I can't even see Heshi as Jerry Siller. Like, I can't. You know, I could still see him sitting there. Like, one of my favorite scenes is when Uncle Junior has the sit down and Tony arranges it and they sit there because, you know, old rules don't apply anymore and, and he's going to tax Heshi for his things. And, you know, and Uncle Junior has a great line don't negotiate with these desert people. They'll take your ass every time. It's like, you know, it's the best. He's so good. I mean, but Jerry Adler, I thought, really played the role. It was as an advisor, consigliere. I thought he was really well done. You know, relate, And I got to believe he'll be in the next one, right? Because he was kind of involved with his dad, right? So you got to feel like the Heshi role is going to come out. Tony told him, he said, you didn't write any songs. You just put your, you know, two black guys wrote songs and you just put your name on to get the release. I mean, think about that, right? Yeah, that was a good. A hit is a hit. That was the first season. You're right. That's where you're like, hey, and Hesh doesn't think he did anything wrong. He's like, well, you know, I marketed these guys. He's like, no, no, they did all the work. You took all the money. They did all the work. You're stealing from them, man. You know, it's like, come on. <laughs> it is a hit. As always, thanks for checking us out here on the GM Shuffle. Once again, follow Mike on Instagram, same as his Twitter handle, M Lombardi NFL, and follow us at the GM Shuffle. Stay safe, everybody. We'll get through this. We'll talk some more football next time around. <laughs> 